All right, Boker Tov. Um, so, uh, today's staff is Memhei. We pick up at the very, very bottom of Mendala Ramaset. We are talking about, um, uh, again, taking the Lulav in the base of Mikdash, um, and also the Arava, which is a theme that we're going to continue. But we first finished up the taking of the Lulav in the base of Mikdash and bringing it Erev Shabbos. So the Mishnah says that they would bring it Erev Shabbos and that they would be arranged by the Itztaba, which was some type of a, um, of a, of a, of a square, of a covered, of a covered, um, uh, um, uh, like, a, um, uh, Square, <laughs> the right word. Anyway, um, um, but uh, like a public space, but apparently had rows of chairs in it as well. So the Gemara says like this: Tani Tama. So two lines from the bottom on the Dama's bed. Um, plaza was the word I was going to say. Tani Tama kamei Rav Nachman. So do you gag ha'itzba? You would put the lulavs on the roof of the itzba. Amalei dechivi yabshen hutzarich. Are you doing it to dry them out? Why do you put them on the roof? It's going to be exposed to the sun and it gets dried out. So, on the top of it, not on the roof, but presumably the top of the chairs, um, or the, the benches. The harbais was a double um, um, stav, or stoa, I think we would say, which is like rows of columns. Uh, they have a picture there? Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, okay. So, yeah. I mean, so actually, if you think about the... Um, the cordo, the cor- right in Yerushalayim, no, uh, cordo, yeah. right? You know, you have those like double columns, and you have, you know, you have like the shops or whatever. So that's uh, he's describing the way that it looked, and uh, that wasn't, you know, that was on the harbais itself, and presumably in that areas where they stored these lulavim. Fine. We now look to the next mishnah. So the initial discussion had been, right, that the spe- that y- lulav would override or would be done on Shabbat. It wouldn't override an actual biblical violation, but we done we done on Shabbat on the first day and a rava on the last day. Although a rava is really only a biblical mitzvah, according to the idea that it's biblical. You know, it's not in the verses explicitly, but it's a halach or moshmisina, whatever. Anyway, it's only in the mikdash, and we therefore have some. We have retained, and for it, the seventh day, Hoshana Rabbah, would be the day it would be done on Shabbat. And we have retained the practice out of the Mikdash to do it on Hoshana Rabbah as well, which the Gemara has attributed to Minog Nevi'im or Yesod Nevi'im. So now we actually look at the Mishnah that describes exactly what was done in the Mikdash. We looked at this earlier, now we're going to look at it inside. Mitzvah Arava Ketzad. What was the Mitzvah of the Arava? Makam Hayu Lamatam Yerushalayim. There was a place below Jerusalem, Benikra Motza, the name of this village or whatever was called Motza. Yardim Lusham, they would go down there. Umalakti Misham, Murbiot Shal they would gather from there like these big branches of Aravas. Ubayim Bezokna Samatide Mizbech, and they would put it and they take it and they would sort of stick it in around the altar, by the edges of the altar. Um, and as we discussed the other day, they would sort of like be bending over a canopy over the, over the tops over the altar. Um, yeah, well, we're going to discuss that in a minute. So they did um, when they uh, stuck it in, like, you know, that would be part of the whole ritual way of also rejoicing. We're going to see when we get to the whole discussion about the... Uh, the water drawing ceremony and the Nisu Chamayim, they would do Tkiyah through Tkiyah. So here too, uh, it would be another ritual that they would do around or the altar, also connected obviously to water, Arve Nachal, and you know how much this is, grows on water, with a Tkiyah through Tkiyah. Now, so there, right now we've emphasized the sticking on the side of the altar. And if you remember, the earlier the question was, which was the emphasis? Was it the sticking on the side or was it the procession around? So now we move to the issue of the procession. 
בכל יום מקיפים את המזבח פעם אחת. Every day during uh, Sukkot, with this, when they would do this Arava ritual, they would walk around the altar once. Um, the Omim, and they'd say, Ana Hashem Oshiyana, Ana Hashem Atzichana. Please God save us, please God make us uh, uh, successful. You know, and that also, not coincidentally, is where we do the shaking of the lulav. I'll also remind you that according to one opinion earlier in the Gemara, this marching around the altar was not with the arava, but was with the whole lulav, right? And if you think about it, right, that's what we do. We do the hakafos with the whole lulav, right? We do the ana Hashem Hoshia in that part, refrain when we are doing the hakafos. And it ties into the fact that when we take the lulav, we shake the lulav at the ana Hashem Hoshia na. So it all sort of ties in together. Now, what's the significance of doing it in Anah Hashem Hashiyana? Obviously, it's an aspect of prayer. And, you know, again, the rainy season is coming up. You want it to be raining and so on. It's worth also noting that Tosos points out that um, um, uh, based on the uh, Pasuk in the Hayamim, where it says, hayar, you know, the uh, trees of the forest will burst out in song. And they'll say, Save us, God, of our salvation. So this is connected to this also idea of Shira and song and Simcha. So it's also a sense of thanking God for the past, which is, you know, also very much a sense of the Simcha of Sukkot and the use of these agricultural products. Okay, so you have that. So you have that connected with the shaking of the lulav at the Ana Hashem Hoshiyana, and you now have it also with this ritual on the altar, which might have been with the lulav, might have been with the arava, with the Ana Hashem Hoshiyana. Rabbi Yudah says, you say, Ani v'hu hoshiyana. I and he save us. Now, that is a very challenging word. What does that mean? So, you know, I'm going to go back and unpack that in a minute. Let's finish reading the Mishnah. Okay? So that's what you would do on the normal day of the week. But that day, on a normal day of Sukkot, but that day, meaning day seven, the big day, you would do it seven times. Um, and of course, this also is evocative of Yericho, you know, marching around each day and then finally doing a seven times marching and the walls fall down. So, what exactly that's supposed to be evoking, you know, hopefully not that the walls of the Mizbeach fall down, maybe the walls between us and God will fall down, thinking about it that way, but also the sense of salvation, you know, the sense about sort of saving us from distress and, you know, being there at a time uh, when we need you, um, seems to be being evoked also in terms of the whole thing that was done at Yericho. Peshat Kirasad Maheno, I mean, what would they say when they would take leave of the altar? So it's quite fascinating, that whole idea of taking leave of, you know. Um, you normally don't ask after the Karnian finished their daily service, you know, in the, in the, in, you know, in the base of Mikdash, what do they do to take leave? But here they would have a ritual of taking leave. So what would they say? Yofi l'chamizbeach, yofi l'chamizbeach. Beauty is to you, O altar. Beauty is to you, O altar. Rabbi Eliezer, O Mir, Rabbi Eliezer would say, said, they said, l'chavilach mizbeach, to God and to you, O altar. L'chavilach mizbeach, to God and to you, altar. Which is very interesting. They would like they would do on the weekday. They would do on Shabbat. Ella um, But here's what they would do because by Shabbat we know you had to prepare ahead of time. So the actual uh, uh, walk, you know walking around the seven times and the sticking in that they would do because that we said is done on Hoshana Rabbah on Shabbat in the Mikdash. But the at preparation they would do ahead of time. So what would they do? Hayim Laktinos on the Erev. They would gather up these uh, uh, rubber branches from while it was still Friday. Umenichinos al Vigigiyot Shelzahav, and they would put it in golden uh, barrels. Kidei Shelo Yichmoshu, so it should not wilt. Rashi said there'd be water in the barrels. 
I don't know, if the interaction of gold and water and uh, we have a chemical interaction with that's good or bad for uh, pres- preserving them. Um, don't don't interact. That, oh, so it's... Uh, gold is pretty inert. Okay, so there you go. Um, it doesn't rust. All right. Um, that they would actually bring uh, big sticks of a palm tree and, and those they would put on the ground near the altar um, now again what does the word chovet mean and before Rashi said that the word chovet like chibut araba which was the description of what we would do Rashi says it means like to, to, to shake it but here, Chovtinotan Bikarka seems much more like it means that they would like bang it against the ground or they would maybe insert it into the ground. And that's, um, as David pointed out yesterday, you know, the Rambam says that as well by the earlier discussion about the Chibut Arava, which was our, because we, you know, we, that is part of our practice, is to hit it against the ground. So here you have that word Chovtin Bikarka. Betzideh HaMizbeach. Those are Yomnikra Chibut Chariyot. That day was called the uh, the banging or the or the uh, or the uh, or the sticking in of the uh, sticks of the palm tree. Okay, now Tosos raises the question. First of all, would he say that you would do this just on Hoshana Rabbah, or did he say that you did this every day? Not so clear. He said Oso Hayom that day, so maybe it's what he said you did Hoshana Rabbah. Tosos also asks, did he deny that you had a, an Arava ritual, or was he just saying that this was in addition to the Arava ritual? Right? Also not clear. But again, something that the Gemara is sort of saying is like, you know, halach l'moshe misinai, or biblical, it's quite fascinating that there's this ambiguity um, around it. So that's why, you know, it might be easier to understand that he's not denying the basic of Rav ritual. He's saying that they would also do this. But it seems like he's giving primacy to this. Right? It was, this day wasn't called Shavi Shala Rava. This day was called, you know, Yom Chibut, uh, what is it called? Chibut um, Chariyos, the, the, uh, the palm branch uh, uh, banking or the palm branch insertion. Um, and again, by the way, notice it raises the same issue, the ambiguity that the Gemara raised about whether when they did the daily procession, not on Hoshana Rabbah, did they do that with a Lulav or did they do it with an Arava? So clearly they're doing these rituals around the altar with either Arava or Lulav or both. Um, you know, and obviously it's very much, seems to be very much connected to the whole water idea. As Charlie pointed out, palm trees need an enormous amount of water as well. So all of these are evocative um, of this whole water. And of course today as well, we do our Hoshanas with the Lulav. And then the last day we do specifically with the Arava. And the, an, an, you know, Ana Hashem Hoshiana sort of uh, connects, the, as I said, the shaking of the Lulav and what was done here. Okay, then the last line um, is a little unrelated. Miyad immediately, Tinoko's Shomtinus Lulavayim, meaning presumably immediately on Hoshana Rabba. Well, now we're done. We've done all of the rituals. Like, that's how you sort of feel. Like, you've gone through such a busy, you know, sukkah. Finally, it's Hoshana Rabba. Then you do like two hours, three hours in show for Hoshana Rabba. Finally, you're done with the whole thing. So now, what do you do with your Lulav and Esro? You know, normally there's a place in the show afterwards where you can, you know, mm-hmm. put that and it'll dispose of them. So that's what the Mishnah says. You're finally done. It's Hoshana Rabba. So at least the Kinokos, the young kids, Shomtinus Lulavayim, would sort of like, the way Tuzzles reads this, would throw down their Lulavs, the Ochlim Esro Geyem, and they'd eat their Esros. Good, we're done. So they would get rid of their Lulavs and they'd eat their Esros. Rashi reads it, Miyat Kinokos, from the hands of the kids, Shomtinus Lulavayim, the adults, would take the lulavs out of the hands of the kids, the ochlin esrogam, and eat the esrogs out of the kids from the kids. 
So Rashi actually says that uh, that this was um, you know so you know that this was the adults taking it like taking candy from a baby like taking new love and an esrog from a baby. Anyway, so Rashi says it wasn't just that they were saying, "Well, finally we're done. We can eat our esrogs," but there was some type of a simcha associated um, with uh, you know the end of Hoshana Rabbah. If you look at the last Rashi on the mission here, he says, "Ochlin et Ogeim." Rashi says. Um, it's not inappropriate to do it while you're stealing it from the kids that was the practice because of joy which is interesting because um, it gets us to the theme of simcha you know which again is always a you know sukkah theme but a theme, theme of simcha at the culmination of Sukkot you know which is interesting in terms of origins of the whole idea of simcha's Torah you know, where does this whole sense about that the culmination of Sukkot after Shini Atzeris is this whole they focused on Simcha and Simcha's Torah and it's actually quite interesting because actually we just finished Purim and there are a couple of halachot that relate both to like Purim and Simcha's Torah that when people are doing certain things Mahmat Simcha there's like an assumption of Mechila like you know um, A first of all there's a famous Ramah that says that if you're dressing up and men are cross-dressing as women that it's not a problem of Begit Isha because it's all done sort of Mahmat Simcha which is fascinating because that's like a biblical prohibition mm-hmm. and to explain that contextually but also they speak <coughs> about things that you would do like you know you would do jousts or you would do uh, juggling and you do other types of things that then could ultimately damage somebody's property you also find this sometimes around weddings and an idea like oh what's all done Mahmat Simcha and there's a presumed Mechila and so on so that's what Rashi is reading in here and again it is interesting thinking about this as the culmination and how that ultimately in our practice culminates in Simcha's Torah okay but anyway that's the last line but um, going back earlier the interesting thing that is um, that we didn't really unpack here was the first of all the taking leave of the altar and what's that about but again it really in a way raises the question about the focus around the altar um, and um, it is um, you know we're thinking about how central you know how many sacrifices were brought on Sukkot you know there would be like the 70 cows and the 14 sheep every day was 14 sheep and it was enormous the amount of sacrifices on Sukkot so there is this highly altered centered period of that Chag so if you're thinking that sort of it's an issue about taking leave right on the seventh day on Hoshana Rabbah so basically like we've been overusing the Mizbeach during this week and you know and there were all the other rituals on the altar there was the pouring of the water on the altar there was the Simchas Beis Shoeva. so it's like now we're actually getting back to our normal year where sort of you know there is this aspect of like taking leave from the altar um, during that time so but that's fascinating to know just that that phenomenon the other thing about Anivahu Hoshia now, what does that mean? So that's very strange. So Rashi points out, the Gemara doesn't unpack what it means, but Rashi points out, if you think about Ana Hashem, right? Ana Hashem Hoshiana. So Hashem, and you have Anivahu, right? Anivahu. Mm-hmm. You see that, that the Bahu, whoops, I just wrote God's name. Oh my God. Can you erase it? That is a good question. That was the tough. Wanted to write. Okay, we're gonna to have to get back to that. I don't know what I'm thinking about that. Okay, anyway, it's close away. Um, okay. You have the Bahu here, so which is so the now that I have God's name up on the board. Um, so you have, you know, the 
So what's that, you know, so why exactly that would be the relevant idea at that time is not, you know, is not so clear. But that definitely is a theme that's going on here and that plays out in some of the, in some of the, um, um, you know, uh, liturgy that we say around the, around Hoshana Rabbah. Some people are very, feel that this is real clearer, um, and they, they, you know, there's a whole question, do you pronounce it Ani Vahu, which is he, being God, or do you pronounce it Ani Vaho, which is a, like not a meaningful word, but it's a way of sort of saying whatever it means, it's some more, you know, esoteric meaning, but we're not actually saying you God, you know, Vahu. So there's a whole question about what the, you know, your different Sidurim, you'll see uh, different, different things in terms of, in terms of that. Um, let's see what this has. I need Vaku this has. So this doesn't have any discussion. I wonder, I don't know what art scroll has. Does Vaku or Vaho? Do they have Vaho? Do we have an art scroll? We do. The art scroll has. Nivaho, there you go. So it's Machlokas, Art Scroll, and um, and Koran. Um, let's see if they have any comment here in the notes. Um, has an asterisk. Nivaho is the English translation of that. Um, oh, here are identified by Rashi and Sukkah as two in a series of 72 divine names, blah, blah, blah. The mystical formulation, okay, wonderful. The particular aptness of the two names from the Gematria of Ana Hashem. It says absolutely nothing about why they punctuated as Vaho rather than Vahu. But part of that has to do with the boldness of this Kabbalistic idea. All right, let's take a look now as we continue. Um, Tana, we taught in the Brighta. Mokum Chwanaya Have. This place called Moza, where they would get the uh, rubber branches, was actually a, pla- a place called Chwanaya. Now, Rashi says that even Chwanaya is not a proper name, but Chwanaya is an Aramaic word which means to be free, not enslaved. The Tana Didan Mai Time Akarili Moza. Why was it called Moza? I did the Mafik and Karga de Malka because it was free from having to pay the king's tax. Karile um, Moza. It was Moza, which means exempted. So actually, both the word Kwanaya and Moza mean the same thing, free and exempted from the king's, king's tax. Why exactly isn't clear. All right. They put it by the side of the altar. Tana, we taught in Brisa, Rabot Aruchot, the Arava branches were, were very um, many, and they were very long. The Gvoas Achadasar Ama, and it was 11 Amas tall. Today you go chot al mizbeach ama that they should be overarching like uh, leaning over the altar an ama. Wow. So how did this work? Amar Meremer Mishu Marzutra. So Meremer said the name of Marzutra. Shmami now we can infer from this al yisod manachlehu they would not be on the ground they would actually be on the base of the altar the bottom of them. How do you know the isla kadaitecha ara manachlehu if it was on the ground michti let's take a look. Allah Amma Vikanas Amma, Zel Yisod. Here's a bright uh, mission, excuse me, that describes how the Mizbeach would look. You'd go up an Amma and in an Amma, that would be the base. Allah um, Chamesh, you'd go up five Amma, Sikine Samma, go in an Amma, Zel Sobe, that's the walk around. Allah Shalosh Zel Makam Hakranos, you'd go up three and then you'd have the place for the corners. So 
So what does that mean? It means that there is, as I said before, there was 32 amot uh, at the base. So the base would be one amma, and then you go in an amma. Then you go up five, right? And then in an amma, and then you go up three, then we get God at the top of the Israel. Up three, and then you have the corners here, okay? So, okay, so basically, right? So this is what, the, what it would look like. So you'd have the base, down here would be 32 wide, but that's not relevant for us. Okay? And how high would it be? 1 plus 5 plus 3 would be 9 amot, plus the extra corner would get you 10, 10 amot, including the corners. Okay? And as you're going in, it goes in an amma here and in an amma there. So if you were going to put it at the base, at the foot, right? And it would have to obviously get a bit of an angle. You put it at the foot and it would be going over, right? And leaning over. So it didn't really have to, this is a side view, it didn't really have to lean over the corner, right? It was leaning over the top, right? Right? You understand, if it's in the middle, it doesn't have to lean over the corner. So how tall does, did these have to be? So what did it say? It said how long were they? It said they were 11 amot, right? It said 11 amot. So let's figure it out. First of all, it's going to have to be a little bit longer, longer because of the angle. But it's not a huge angle. But anyway, up to the top is going to be 9, right? 9 amot, yes? Now, if it says gochot, ama, the way Rashi understands what that means is that the overhang here, here, this is the top view of it, here's the top of the altar, the actual bend over is an ama, and it has to be at least an ama off of the top. Otherwise, it would be called, Rashi said, dragging, okay, on the top. So, Rashi understands, the way Rashi understands the assumption is that the bend has to be an ama, and the, it has to be suspended an ama. Okay, so if it's nine amot here, and it's if, if, if the height is nine, and it starts on the floor, okay, so you get so nine. That's actually nine, you know, point whatever plus an epsilon. Nine point two. Nine point two. I know. I actually did the math beforehand. <laughs> okay, plus an amma plus an amma, it has to be bigger. It has to be bigger than eleven amot. Mm-hmm. Okay, because of the angle. If it started on the floor, it'd have to be bigger than an 11 amot to hang over, to bend an amma and hang an amma, right, because of the angle. So the Gemara says it can't be that it was on the floor and it was only 11 amot. It would have to be that they put it on the base, and that allowed it to be. Now, of course, the problem with that is that, that how does it get supported on the base? I mean, how does it get supported on the floor? It's all tile. There's no ground to stick it in. So presumably, wherever you did it, they must have had, I don't know, like you have like flagpoles. They must have had stands to put it in. And that's actually the uh, they have a picture with stands? Picture with yeah, so whether it's on the floor on the base, it's on something hard. Like, it's not on soft dirt. That's a separate stand. It's not on the base in the picture. Right. But so where was it? But anyway, where was it? Was it stood here? Was it stood here? The most of it has to have been on the yisod, not on the floor. Okay? So, it says, um, okay, shvamina. Um, so that's a good proof. So Amar Rabbi Yavahu, Micra, where's the verse that you see that um, that the that we should have these these aravas going suspended over the altar, um, hanging up over the altar? So Nehemiah, the verse says, Isruchad be'avotim ad which normally is read, bind the chag, the sacrifice, the the, the, the you know the uh, festival sacrifice with ropes by the horns of the altar. But here it's being read that Rashi says that the word um, um, avotim can mean trees, 
and the word Isru can mean surround. Oh, wow. So surround, you know, on the holiday with trees around the corners of the altar. So that gives you this idea of putting the Arabos and having them surrounding the altar. Again, also notice the emphasis of trees, like Tosus mm-hmm. quoted the verse about Ad Yiranu Atse Hayar. Um, I'm already a bomb Rebbe Lezer. Now we have a nice little drush of this. Anybody who takes love in the Eged, because that's what Isru chad, to bind up. So you're binding the lulav with the hadas and the arava. The hadat ba'avuto, and the hadat which is, right, which is avot, right? Anafit avot, so that's ba'avotim, you see the planned words? So isru, chag is sukkot, that's the classic chag. Isru, bind up, bind up the lulav, be'avuto, with the hadat, that is an anafit avot. So if you bind up your lulav and you have your hadas and you have it all done, then mala lava kosu, the thrower treats it, kilu like you built an altar, the hikriva lav korban, and you offered a sacrifice on it. As the verse says, bind up your, on the chag, with the, you know, with your avot, with your hadas, onto the altar. Now that's very nice because that ties into a theme that we discussed earlier, which is, you know, the whole idea of the shaking of the lulav and the, and the waving of the, uh, of the uh, shehalechem we mentioned, right, and the connections to the altar, the connections to which the lulav is compared to a korban. If you remember, the estrog is compared to a korban, balei mumim, tmimim, the lulav, the whole idea of guzzle, the waving of it, like you would wave the shehalechem. And here we're get, again getting that idea, you bind it up and you offer it up to God like you offer up a sacrifice and that connection. The Marasha takes it further and he actually says, it doesn't just say you offered a sacrifice, it says you built the altar because there's the preparation. So the binding of it together is like the act of construction. You construct the lulav, you build the altar, and then you offer it. And I think the idea of building an altar particularly resonates because we're talking about a post-Mikdash reality. There is no altar to offer things up on nowadays. So what we're looking for is a way to reenact or you know reimagine this in the Beis Hamikdash mode. So it's not just saying it's like we offered a sacrifice. First, our whole preparation is like we've built the altar. We've bound it up, we've created, we've built the altar, and now we're shaking it like we would wave, you know, the Shealechem, and now we're offering it. Okay, and that's, I think, very important, because also remember the whole idea of Zechel and Mikdash, right? I mean, here we're talking about how they would do all these rituals in the base of Mikdash. We talked about Lulav Zechel and Mikdash. So it's like a very powerful Gemara that's trying to create that virtual Mikdash reality um, now that we're bringing this, okay? I'm a Rebbe Yirmi and Mishum Rebbe Shimon ben Yochai. Now, said Rebbe Yirmi and Rebbe Shimon ben Yochai. Rebbe Yochanan Mishum Rebbe Shimon Hamachuzi. Mishum Rebbe Yochanan Hamakuti. Interesting. Kol Ose Isur Lachad. Anybody that does a binding to the to the holiday, the Achila Vishtia and eating and drinking, Mala Lavakasu Kilu Banamis Beach Viki Valav Korban is like you built an offer, altar and offered a sacrifice. Shemer Isur Chag Beavstein bind the holiday with Avotim. Right? He says your Avot means like a like a big animal, a thick animal. Um, like avot means like thick, like a nice juicy animal. Ad karnota mizbeach on the on the altar. So you're binding your eating. Now, what does binding your eating mean? So Rashi says two explanations. One just means that you have nice eating on the yantiv for simchas yantiv. Okay, then it doesn't exactly explain what the word 
to bind means. The other explanation is the famous day for what's the, what do we call the day after Yantif? Yisruchah. To bind it means to like add something onto it, connect to it the following day, and have the joy of the following day. Which is a nice idea, but it doesn't exactly explain why that's like offering up a sacrifice. What is the idea of Yisruchah? I mean, that's where we get the words from. But how is it connected to this idea of a sacrifice? So the Marasha has the third explanation, which is very beautiful, and which fits with the word Israel. The word Israel means to forbid, right? Or to hold yourself back, to constrain, to bind. And what the Marshall says is, if you don't make yourself a glutton on Yantiv, you hold yourself back a little bit, and therefore you demonstrate that what you're, you're eating is a religious eating. It's to enjoy the Yantiv, it's to sort of, you know, have simcha of the Yantiv, but you don't let yourself, like, overly indulge and fret and get caught up in your own satisfying of your own, like, you know, purely about satisfying your own uh, appetite. So then, it's like you've offered it up, and there he says that ties into the idea that we say that nowadays our table is like an altar, right? That's the, an idea you've heard. So you will make your yuntif table into an altar and offer a sacrifice on it. How? And this is a very interesting idea. What do we mean when we say our table is an altar? What does that even mean? So one way, obviously, of explaining it is, in the past, the altar would eat the sacrifices, as it were, and that would be our way of offering to God. Nowadays, if we do our eating with the recognition of God and in the religious context, our eating is like the eating of the altar, and that's a way in which we serve God if we can make it into a religious context. But what the Marsha says here is that if you actually hold yourself back, that even more resonates in the idea of sacrifice. You're not just taking it for you. What uh, sacrifice? You're giving something of your own to God. So here you're holding yourself back from eating this thing in front of you, right? And you're offering it up, as it were, to God in acknowledgement that this is not just about me indulging. Now again, it doesn't say you, you should be ascetic on yourself. Obviously you should be eating and enjoying. But don't overly indulge. There should be a degree of holding back. And that, yeah, and that's an offering to God and that makes it like you have built your, you built your altar, you've made your table into your altar and offered up to God. So very, again, very beautiful, powerful idea. Said, and you the Maharsha. So, and that again is interesting how we are trying to bring the Mikdash reality, so much of this Daf and these few Dafim are about Mikdash, into our current reality. Okay, so now the Gemara continues. Um, um, since we mentioned Reb Shimbar Yochai, right, Reb Yirmi in the name of Reb Shimbar Yochai, we're doing a similar tradition, and this obviously also connects very much to Sukkot. You don't fulfill your mitzvot by, if you have to use things that like grow, unless you uh, use them in the way they grew. Shenemar, the verse says, standing acacia wood. So meaning, and therefore when it, it had to be omade, it had to be standing the way it grew. Time, when you use it in the Mishkan. Again, by the way, notice the connection to the Mishkan. They stand, they, they have to be erected the way they grew. And this is used to say why you're not Yosei, Lulav, and Esra when they grow in the wrong direction. But again, notice the associations that are being created in the Gemara. Right? The Gemara is basically saying, you know, again, bringing the mitzvah of Lulav and Esra into the Mishkan. Not only is it bringing it into the Mishkan, but the Gemara before made this bold statement, it's like you built an altar. 
So think what it's doing right now. It's connecting taking of the Lubin to the building of the Mishkan. Right? Not just through some ritual, but reminding us about the whole Mishkan was built by things that grow and using them in the way they grew. And we also, when we take Lubin we have to use it in the way that they grew. So it's very much, again, reinforcing this, bringing us into this Mishkan reality. By the way, it is interesting because if you think about it, an esrog, anybody ever see an esrog grow on a tree? Does the pitam grow up or down? So when the fruit hangs from the tree, the pitam hangs down. down. So how come we take it up? So the basic answer is because when it starts growing, it starts growing up, but then the weight of it pulls it down. But that's actually interesting about the, based on this halacha. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Um, uh, there, um, another explanation of Omdim, they stand they hold their uh, their um, coat they're coated with gold so it's sort of it doesn't like it's not like you support the you know they're, they, they completely support the gold that they're that, 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 that coats them Dabar um, Acher which is not so clear what the larger point about that is Omdim they stand Sheva Tomar this is a very famous Gemara Avad Sivram Ubitel Sikuyam lest you say that their hope is lost and their again aspirations are, are nullified meaning now we don't have a base of Mikdash so that's it it's all a waste no, it's never coming back the end lest you say that Tamud Lamar Atzei Shitim Omdim no they're standing they're always eternally standing ultimately there will be a future the hope is not lost maybe it also means in a metaphysical way they're continuing to stand even till today so again notice how that reinforces the theme here as well here we are post Horban but the point is don't worry we still are living the base of Mikdash always exists it'll come back in the future it exists even now you can build your own Mizbeach and offer a sacrifice by taking the Lulav you can do it by eating on Yantiv right so all of this is creating that Mikdash reality right now in the context of Sukkot okay the Amar Chizki Amar Rebbe Yirmiya Chizki also said the name of Rebbe Yirmiya so same, a, a, a same uh, sort of a, you know trident of tradition here trident of tradition um, this doesn't directly connect to what we were talking about I could exempt the entire world minadin from you know from the divine judgment from negative divine judgment from the day it was created until now meaning I am so righteous that you know uh, that my merits would get everybody else off the hook um, everybody that you know for all the bad deeds that were done from the day it was created until now the Omale Eliezer Bini Imi and if Eliezer my son was together with me you remember Kimbar Yochai and Eliezer were the ones that went into the cave mm-hmm. so we could exempt the world from all negative judgments from the day the world was created until now the Omale Yosam Ben Uzio Imanu and if Yosam Ben Uzio is a very righteous king was with us from the day the world was created until the very end of creation okay so again not exactly clear what point he's trying to make here and why this is an appropriate thing to say but uh, we don't have time to figure that out or unpack it but it's quite a bold statement yeah. a similar statement in the name of Shemar Yochai I have seen those uh, literally children of elevation meaning righteous people and there are very few really righteous people in this world but here's what you should know if the total number of righteous people are a thousand then I and my son are amongst even the top we're in the top thousand 
if there's only a hundred real righteous people in this world, I and my son are in, are in the list. And by the way, even if there were only two, guess who they are? It's me and my son. Okay, so again, I really don't know the larger point being made here. Um, so the Gemara says like this, Umi zutre, zutre kulehai. Uh, is it really so small, this list? Maybe it's only two, maybe it's only a hundred. Dama Rava, Rava says, Tamei Stre Alfei, 18,000 people is Dara Havei Kuchabrichu, is the row in front of God, the row of like, you know, students in God's yeshiva, the row of people that surround God, but there are 18,000 in God's, what we, we would say, innermost circle. So it's not um, a lot more than two or a hundred or a thousand. Shinamar, the verse says, Svivav, Saviv, around it, was Shmona Asar Elif, 18,000, and that's being read, it's, uh, you know, in the verses in Yechezkel, it's about the future of Jerusalem, but it's being read as those that surround God. So it says, Lokash, it's not difficult, when he said the real people of elevation, a thousand, a hundred, two, is people that looked through a lens that was a lighted lens, meaning they could clearly see God. If you're in, looking through a cloudy lens, like notice the word spaklaria, specu, you know, like uh, speculum, uh, you know, uh, spectator spectacles, right? It's the Greek word to see. Yeah. So if you're looking through a, a an, an unlit lens, a cloudy lens, then you are, then there's like 18,000. But the real innermost circle is only maybe 1,000 or 100 or whatever. Okay. Well, so the Gemara that, says... comparing Rabbi Shimon to Moses. Well, okay, so that's a good pickup. So the Marsha says, what does this mean that there's a 1,000 or 100 that see in, 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 in a lit lens? The Gemara says only Moshe saw in, in, in a lit lens. So the Marsha makes another bold statement, and he says, that's the Gemara comparing Moshe to other prophets. But here we're talking not about prophecy, but about being a sage. And being a sage is greater than being a prophet. So that actually the sages can actually be a thousand or a hundred. So it's also a pretty bold statement, which means that, you know, that, that yes, it's true, sages could be on an equal level to Moshe. You would also assume it means that, whatever, you know, different, different type of way of envisioning God or, or experiencing God. Okay, so now the Gemara says like this. Gemara is still not satisfied. Even those that see in the lit lens, is it really so small? Only a thousand or a hundred? Uh, I'm sorry, only two. We're, we're only going on the last part of the statement when he suggested that there were only two people that were really at the high, you know, you know, that were the real tzaddikin. Is it possible that he, those that see in the lit lens are really, ju- it's possible it's just two? The Hamar Abai says, Lo pachos alma miklasim There's no fewer than 36 righteous. Here's the basis of the idea of the Lamed Vavniks. There's no fewer than 36 righteous people that greet God on a daily basis, meaning that are directly in God's innermost circle. 36 is the minimum, not two. Shinamar, as the verse says, praise are all that wait for him. Lo, bigamatria, and lo in gematria is 36. Plus in Vishisahabi. So how can you say it's just two? So the says, lo kasha, it's not difficult. Had the Ayli Bibar, those that go in Bibar are two. Had the Ayli Bar going in without Bar is 36. Now what's Bar? So Rajvi says Bar means permission. If you can just walk into God's innermost chamber, obviously this is all a metaphor based on, you know, a kingly court, but if you could just walk in without permission, then it's possibly only two. And would be Rav Shimon Yochai and Eliezer and Eliezer his son. 
those that, that greet God every day, but they need permission, those are 36. Okay, that's the way Rashi is it. Others read the word bar, like bar normally means in Aramaic. What is bar? Oh. Son. So he says, no, those that go in with their sons, that's just me and Elosa. Two. <laughs> 36. There might be 36, but that doesn't include their sons. That's just them. Those that are so righteous that, you know, father and son teams, that's just the two of them. Okay. Moving on. That was an interesting digression. Okay. So now when they would take leave of the altar, and again, the point that it's very fascinating, the whole concept of taking leave, what would they say? So... So they would say, like, to God and to you, O altar. So the Gemara says, one minute. When in their, in their words of praise, they're combining God with the altar. To God and to you, it's God and to you, O altar. You don't, you don't like combine God with anything, right? Like God and the altar are on mm-hmm. some equal level that you can, you know, you know, acknowledge them in the same sentence. So the Gemara says, If you combine God's name with something else, meaning in like a word of praise or in taking an oath, taking an oath in the name of God and heaven and earth, you're equating a created thing with God. You're, so you're uprooted from the world. It's heresy. Only to God alone. Nothing else can be combined with God. So This is what it means. To, you, to God we give thanks. The lecha is you the altar. Anu mishavchim we give praise. Or another way, lecha anu modin. To God we give thanks. The lecha to you the altar. Anu mekalsin. Again, another word for praise. So when it says lecha v'lach mizbeach, it's like lecha to God. To God is our fealty, like you know, like an elliptical sentence. And to you, O altar, we praise. But there's a verb, an implicit verb between the lecha and the lach mizbeach. Okay. So that's at least the way the Gemara is saying what it meant. It means in context. Question? Yeah. Why would we be even praising and all? That's something that humans. So that's a good point. So Rashi says the word modin here is um, like we give thanks. We give thanks that there is an altar, that the altar, you know, is there to atone for our sins and so on. But nevertheless, to whom is the thanks directed? You could say, well, thank God for the altar. You don't thank the altar. Yes, no. it is a um, a uh, anthropomorphism. You know, it is. You know, we are give, we are treating the altar as a being to which we are thanking. That is true. It's you know, there's a lot of very uh, challenging, disturbing, you know, anthropomorphic stuff going on here, right? Like the Zaniva Hu Hoshianan, whatever that meant. And you're right, a direct addressing of the altar. It is. It's very uh, you know challenging ideas here. Okay. To Maseo Bechol. Right they would do in the weekday, they would do in Shabbos, except they would gather the stuff beforehand. So the Gemara says like this, I'm a Rav Huna, my time is Rav Yochanan ben Broko. What's the reasoning of Rav Yochanan ben Broko who says that they would not use Aravas, but they would use Lulavim, or maybe additionally use a Lulavim, but he would focus on the Lulavim. So Dixiv, the verse says, Kapot, it says the same way Arvenachal, the double language, told us that there was an Arava ritual, according to some. The Kapot in the plural tells us that there's a Lula ritual in the, you know, in the, uh, in the Beis HaMikdash. Achas Lulav, Achas Mizbeach, a special Lulav ritual around the altar. In addition to the fact that there's generally a mitzvah of taking the Lulav in the Beis HaMikdash, there was a particular ritual around the altar. Rabbanon Amri, and the Rabbanon would say that, Kapot, Ksiv, it's written without the Vav, so it's only one act. Reblevi or Kitama? Reblevi says, no, it's not based on a verse. It's based on the symbolism. 
Okay, Matamar is there, the same way a palm tree. Ainlo Elalevechad only has one heart. Right, because it has something to do with the way the marrow grows in the palm tree and it's centralized like a human heart. Anyway, Ab Yisrael So the palm tree is like the sense of single. It's true, by the way, when you look at a palm tree, the idea of like a unity, one, because it grows so like so straight and so tall, right, as opposed to other trees, right. So that simplifies like one heart, one. You know, the idea of of, of like you know feel uh, of, of like just all for one thing so we're all for God the same as the palm tree is a single thing all, our heart is totally devoted to God it also evokes that statement about Rebbe Akiva remember Rebbe Akiva said one palm one Esra one Adas one Arava like it's all about this you know fidelity to God and that therefore because that's symbolized by the uh, by the palm tree we want to do a ritual with the palm tree by the altar to show our you know, single worship of God. Let's read a little bit more. So, we only have one heart to God. Okay, then that's it. So we will end with this today and tomorrow we'll pick up on the uh, halachic discussions of making the very important making the bracha of Lulav and Sukkah. You had one final question, Charlie? Yeah, Tamar is specifically date palms? Yes. Okay, because there are other palm trees that aren't like that. Oh, I see. Yeah, but it is a date palm. Okay. Very good.